Thanks for listening to the Bow Church podcast. This is part two of our Understanding Revelation series with political theologian Stephen Backhouse. So um, Stephen will, will join us. Sorry, um, Stephen will we'll kick off in a sec. Louise is going to join us at some point um, uh, shortly. She's uh, been an incredible mother right now and, and yeah. helping her daughter, which is, to be honest, a, a very important thing and potentially more important than talking about Revelation. So bless Louise <laughs> as she mothers. But Stephen, help us to engage them with, with this text as we, um, we grapple with these big ideas last time. It's incredible to get the overall picture of Revelation. But help us by going a little bit further into these texts. Yeah, well, Tim, I mean, I wasn't originally going to talk to Louise, but I'll just chat with you a bit and we'll see what happens. I I was going to, it was kind of a barrage last time, wasn't there? Of like lots and lots of sort of vague overviews and talking about how it's a political text. So I'm originally a political theologian. So I spend a lot of time looking at how the earliest church, the earliest Christians saw themselves in relationship to states and nations and empires and violence and money and organizations all the stuff that we would talk about when we talk about politics i'm always interested in well what does the new testament say about those things or what was going on in the background or in the foreground right when the new testament was being written so a lot of interesting things happen when you read the book of revelation as a political theologian and one of the things you that it's 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 a a well-known secret <laughs> or a, a not very well-discussed secret it, that the book of Revelation is primarily a political book. It's one of the most overtly political books in the whole New Testament because a lot of the crazy symbolism is actually about Rome or about empire or about Caesar. Um, the imagery is all about a king who's returning to put things back to rights or the creation of a new city or the end of one era and the beginning of a new rule and reign. And so all the imagery really is has to do with ruling and reigning and politics. So I was talking a bit about that last time. But then I thought you and I were thinking, well, what if we grounded it a bit? What if we just looked at some actual passages in the Revelation and just see this happening? So a key passage, I want to look at 18 and 19. So get your Bibles open. And we're going to talk till about uh, 5 to 8, something like that. Um, And then we're going to have a break. And then we can continue questions and answers and discussions and all that. Do do write stuff in the chat. I'm not able to monitor the chat while I talk. So I think there'll be somebody else monitoring that, Stephen or somebody. So, Uh, But do do that and then we can talk about some of those things. So my translation that I'm using is is there's a theologian named David Bentley Hart who is an Orthodox, Greek Orthodox theologian, and he did his own translation of the New Testament a few years ago. And I don't, I'm not a translation snob. I think they're all fine in different ways. But I like this one because he is, well, he's not an evangelical Protestant. He's not a Catholic. Like, he's coming at it from a, from a cultural traditional background that I think most people on this call probably wouldn't have experienced before. And there's something good about seeing familiar things with new eyes. And he's, he's a a man who's able to bring out some of the weirdness and the oddness of these passages that we might've become too familiar with. 
and also he's a man who takes uh, pays attention to the politics of the thing so I like his translation so what I did was I went through um, here's one I prepared earlier and you can see lots of little pink lines on my this I've highlighted lots of key te uh, words that I think I want to talk about so that's what we're gonna do we're just gonna go and hopefully we'll get through 18 and 19 by uh, 5 to 8 so there we go <laughs> so if, if nothing else you'll have heard the Bible being spoken out. So there you go. If nothing else, Ash Wednesday, you get some Bible. Um, so this is John. He has had a revelation of Jesus. The revelation is the revelation of Jesus, who's telling John about things. One of the things I, I pointed out last time was that some of the book of Revelation is talking about the future and what's going to happen. But a lot of it is actually talking about what's happening right now. It's about trying to, to tell the believers who are living under persecution to see their life from a cosmic point of view, to, to not see themselves as just uh, huddled in little homes while being persecuted by the government. Instead, to see their story as, some, as part of something bigger and it's unfolding around them right now as they speak. So a lot of Revelation is also about the present and a lot of it is trying to convince or encourage the believers that the big empires that they're living under do not have the final say. So it's a little bit like he's saying to them, like, right now you think you're being persecuted, but this isn't the end. There is a different end in mind for these empires and they will fall. They will go the way that all empires go. Thereafter, I saw another angel descending out of heaven who had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his glory. One of the first words I want to look at here in, in verse one is heaven. Heaven is a, a political type word because it, it when the New Testament uses heaven, they're referring to the rule of God. Uh, another way to describe heaven is not so much a place you go to when you die. It's um, it's the way to describe the how God's rule is unopposed where God's reign is unopposed that's called heaven okay so you see an angel or a messenger of God coming from the place where God's rule is unopposed and the earth was illuminated by his glory so he's come to a place that is not where God's reign is unopposed and he cries out in a loud voice saying fallen fallen Babylon the great the word Babylon here, this is verse 2. So Babylon, I, I, I've mentioned before, the, the word that the book of Revelation gives to the Roman Empire is Babylon. And we know that it's Babylon, we know that it's Rome because of earlier on there's this imagery of the beast with ten heads, for example, and it's called Babylon. Well, Rome, the city of Rome has ten hills on it with ten fortresses. It was known as the dragon with ten heads it's like it's just this a lot of this imagery is actually just about rome which we moderns sometimes forget and so we add all sorts of crazy stuff on top of it but really it's a way for john to describe the roman empire but he's describing it in sort of cosmic language but he calls it babylon which is an ancient word which is a well-known word to the hebrews because Babylon, of course, had its beginning in Genesis 6, which is the famous story of the Tower of Babel. 
And if you go back to Genesis 6, which we don't have time to do, but uh, it's a really good study worth doing. You look at the Tower of Babel is the story of humans. God has told humans to scatter across the earth and multiply. And then we're and then we're told very told that they did not scatter. They gathered together and they founded a, a city and they decided to build a huge tower, which they thought of as like their gateway to the gods. And um, one of the things about the the ancient world, and this is going to come up, by the way, is that um, the ancient world, the ancient Hebrews, as well as the ancient Mediterranean tribes around, when they looked up to the stars in the sky, they thought of the stars in the sky as rulers. So when when the Jews talked about the Lord as the Lord of hosts, the host that he's Lord over is the hosts, the starry hosts, right? And each star kind of represented a being, a divine being that had rule or reigning function. So each star was meant to have reigned over some people group, for example. And so angels, and they were considered angels or semi-divine beings. And one of the things that the Babylonians thought was that they were the products. Do you remember in the book of Genesis, there was this strange story where the, the sons of God are attracted to the daughters of men and they come down and they have sex with humans and then they create uh, heroes on the earth. And it's this really strange story in the book of Genesis. Well, the sons of God were stars in the sky. They were the angels that were given authority over the nations. And the book of Genesis tells a story how the stars in the sky didn't want to li live with their rule. They didn't they didn't want to take their they didn't accept their position and so they they messed things up. They came down to earth and that wasn't their right place. They became fallen angels. And in fact it's their union between a fallen angel and a human that in the book of Genesis leads to the flood by the way. But the Babylonians thought that they were the descendants of that story it's an ancient story that is not just the jews have it and the babylonians were proud of this story we are the union of angels and humans and we and where they touch down to earth is where we are building our tower to get back up to the starry hosts so the babylonian myth was that we are fallen stars and we're going to go back up to to the hosts to take our rightful place and the hebrews thought of this as blasphemy the babylonians thought of it as aspirational and Babylon is the, is like it's where the Tower of Babel was built. It's where the site of, you know, God had to give them all different languages in order to break them up. Babylon then became the great city state which held Israel under its thrall. It was the empire that ruled the Jews for a long time. So the word Babylon takes with it throughout the Bible, not just an ancient city that at one time was opposed to the Jews. It now means any empire that sets itself up as a little god okay and it's political it's spiritual and uh, that's the name that they give rome they say this is another babylon she has become a habitation of demonic beings right and a prison for every impure spirit and here the demonic beings this is this is the word that's being used here is that a, a demon is like a, a fallen angel. It's a, a divine, a semi-divine being who had the authority to rule over humans, 
but then used their power badly and wrongly, didn't want to do a good job. Verse 3, because all the Gentiles have drunk of the wine of her whoring, and Babylon is now described as a prostitute, a drunken prostitute. And there were Gentiles here. In the book of Genesis and then from onwards, we have the idea that God's chosen people are the true humans. And the Hebrews thought of Gentiles as less than human. <laughs> and the idea was that uh, their land was now being run by people who were less than human or very unclean. And they, they hadn't taken on the full image of God, basically. So you've got the Gentiles who are now running the empire. They're running the world. And all the kings of the earth are running after her, right? And she's described as a, as a prostitute. And it's all luxurious language and riches and wealth. And verse 4, a voice says, Come out of her, my people, so that you might not share communion in her sins. The idea is that participation in, in Rome, in empire, in Babylon, it's, it's part of what's making the world unclean. Come out of her, for her sins have been reaped high. And then in verse 6, you have like, Give her just as she has been given. Redouble according to her deeds. In the cup she has mixed, mix double for her. And here this is the idea that the wrath of God is I've said this before, but I wanted to point this out. I said it before that a lot of the times in the New Testament, the wrath of God is, it's not an arbitrary judge. It's not like God is arbitrarily judging you like some Olympics <laughs> swim coach or something, or a dance judge or something. Like You don't do your thing and then at the end, he holds up a scorecard. It's It's more like the wrath of God is, experience when humans get what they want it's experienced as the wrath of god like if humans rebel if they choose to rebel then the lord says you will get what you want experienced for you as if it's the wrath and here you see this kind of happening it's like give her what she wanted give her double of what she wanted this is what the wrath of god is going to feel like to them it's to get what she wants what babylon wants luxury glorifying herself giving grief to others arrogance pride and all her calamities come and then you see a bunch of people who've been participating in the way of rome and i guess i want to point out that this isn't it's every day it's kings it's merchants it's sailors it's humans it's not spiritual beings here you get verse 9, you get the kings of the earth. All the different rulers of all the different nations are seen to participate. And again, Rome is Rome, but Rome is also Babylon. And Babylon is any empire that sets itself up. And so in the book of Revelation, you get this idea that the kings of the earth are all lots of mini Romes. They all have something to do with Rome. And... Uh, they are crying over their city and then verse 11 the merchants come and then in verse 12 you get a whole list of things that you would buy and sell everyday items and today we would might talk about ipads and tescos and you just mention <laughs> trainers and baby clothes like you just mentioned all the things that we would buy and sell and it ends though there's lots and lots, cinnamon, cardamom, but then look where it ends. Verse 13, bodies and souls of human beings. This is the 
the exploitation and the buying and trading of people's lives is all wrapped up in the sin and the, the depravity of I guess what you'd say is that Babylon is like an anti-human organization it's a human organization which has grown inhuman and it keeps demanding the sacrifice of humans in order to keep going it demands war it demands blood it demands your children be sort of uh, dedicated to it it demands slavery just all Babylons all empires always are that just grind up humans and spit them out and Stephen, just um, yeah. just on that, so the the symbology of like the jump from Babylon, meaning Rome. Firstly, I guess, do you think that would that be really obvious to the audience? And is is part yeah, of it yeah. like because obviously, as we talked about last week, this is a persecuted group. Yeah, right, yeah. This, I think you call it like a resistance document or subversive yeah, yeah. kind of document. So, is is part of the um, the satire is they're like is the i guess what i'm asking is why don't they just call it rome is that because they're trying to link back to their own tradition or is there a degree of having to be yeah. veiled to actually protect themselves well I, there might be a little bit of a veiled protection in case the roman soldiers find the parchment they don't want to be completely rumbled really right away but it's more than just a code it's not it's not just a code it's also trying to tell um, everyday Christians who are right now living in Roman Empire saying, look, what you're experiencing right now is part of a bigger story. Rome is just one of many Babylons. Humans have, since the time of Cain, humans have been murdering each other and building cities on top of the blood of the, of the murdered people. So when you right now, persecuted Christian, are being persecuted by Rome, don't think of yourselves as just being persecuted by this nation right now. Think of yourself as part of a story that stretches all the way back to Genesis and that has cosmic proportions and universal proportions because any city anywhere that's persecuting people who are following the way of Jesus can see themselves now as in this story of Babylon, right? So it's Rome, but it's also all Babylons everywhere. Yeah. And and it and it's it's kind of deliberately making your everyday merchant transactions, your everyday military transactions, your your normal citizenship to your kings. It's it's also saying all these things too are part of a bigger story. It's part of organized human rebellion against God more often than not. So then we got the the, the um the merchants we get the uh, ships pilots and people who are sailing and traveling there's a international a multinational flavor to the book of revelation many many different types of nations are mentioned all the time and then you get verse 21 the angel from heaven from the place where god's reign is unopposed does a prophetic act and says i'm going to throw this millstone into the sea Thus, this is how Babylon will be cast down. One of the things about um, the demons, think of the Satan, think of the character of Satan, who's, who's always like this figure who has the rule and reign of the nations, right? And so I've said this before, Satan is not like um, the little red demon that sits on your shoulder and tempts you to, to have an extra biscuit <laughs> or, or to gossip. Like the, the temptation of Satan is always to do with power, 
and ruling and reigning. Like this is what Jesus had to face. If you bow to me, all the nations will be yours, says Satan. And so here we've also getting the same kind of thing that uh, Satan is always, whenever he shows up in the Bible, he shows up throughout the Bible, he always gets cast down pretty quickly as well. Okay. So one of the things about Satan is he's always trying to rule and dominate the world and he's always being put back in his place. He's eternally being cast down. And here Satan is is associated is going to be associated with Babylon. Babylon is being cast down. Again, it's part of like reminding Jewish and Christian followers of Jesus that like we are part of a story where whenever the Satan puffs himself up and tries to dominate humans he always gets cast down and this is going to happen again or it actually from the revelation point of view it sort of already has happened even if we haven't felt the the full effects of it yet and he will no longer be found babylon will no longer be found um for in by your sorcery all the gentiles were led astray and in her was found blood of prophets and the holy ones and all of those slaughtered upon the earth. Remember Jesus said uh, a prophet is never welcome in his hometown. And there's this sense that the the voice of God, God, the prophet is always the one who's speaking truth to power, right? The prophet is always God's truth spoken into places of power. And wherever you find powerful men who think that they've got it all sorted, kings or priests in the Hebrew Bible, you always have a so whenever you have like a humans who have built an institution, which they then say, this institution is going to do it all for us. It's where the God's reign is right now. Like our institution has got it right. And you get complacent and you sit on your throne or you, and, you, and you think that you are the one who is running the world now. And along comes a prophet saying, woe to you. You think you've got it all sorted, but we're here to tell you. You've forgotten the cause of the oppressed. You've forgotten the widow, the orphan. You've forgotten the foreigner, right? And that's in the Hebrew Bible, that the prophet is always that voice against the powerful, entrenched people. And this was the voice that Jesus has. So the early Christians associated themselves with the prophets, not with the priests and kings. And here we're seeing it again, that the, the sort of prophetic element, that that. You think you've got it sorted, Babylon, but we're here to tell you. Babylon has always had people saying that to them, and Babylon has always killed them. Because a prophet is never welcome in their hometown. And uh, and again, imagine being a persecuted Christian living in Rome, and somebody tells you, you're not just Tim May living in Bo, you're also a prophet. Remember Elijah? <laughs> Remember Jesus? Remember all those people who spoke truth to power? Well, you're one of them. Verse chapter 19. And thereafter, it was as if I heard a loud noise of a large crowd in heaven. Here we are, back to heaven, saying, Alleluia, the salvation and glory and power to our God. And I want to just point out the word salvation there. This is chapter 19, verse 1. Salvation. So many Christians were very tempted or very conditioned to think of salvation as salvation of your personal soul from hell. That if you're good or if you say the right magic words in a prayer that when you die, you go to heaven when you die. But the 
the word salvation in the New Testament is operating on so much more than your individual salvation from punishment. It's it's to do with like setting the world back to right. Remember, Jesus said, broad is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to life. And he was talking about the broad way of normal human life. People, the way people and we organize ourselves, the way most people live leads to destruction. And look around us and it's true, right? We, we don't, we're not fruitful. We don't flourish. We keep people down. We're misogynistic. We're homophobe. We're racist. Like that's the majority around the world. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. And salvation is the narrow way. And it's salvation, not so much salvation when you die. It's salvation right now. The kingdom of God is better than the kingdoms of man. And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is here. You, we can live in it now. And so they're saying, Alleluia, the salvation is in power from God. His judgments are true and just. And here in verse 2, the idea that judgment was something that early Christians wanted. They looked forward to judgment. Because it's connected to salvation. It's connected to shalom. The idea that everything is back in its rightful place. Shalom just means like peace and but but perfect harmony. And they associated judgment of the right judgment of Jesus as bringing shalom. Where everything goes back in its rightful place. Remember how Babylon started because the rule, the sons of God didn't want to accept their rightful place. They wanted to upend creation. And then the Babylonians didn't want to accept their rightful place and they wanted to build a, a tower to heaven. So salvation is putting everyone back in their rightful place. And his judgments are true and just. And then they, they see that uh, Babylon is finally smoking. And then you get in verse 4, And the 24 elders and the four animals fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne. And I wanted to highlight this throne room imagery because, again, it, the, the sons of God language in the Old Testament, which is the, the angelic beings who are ruling and reigning sort of on behalf of God. And he sits in his throne room and he gathers together all of his, 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 his uh, angels and he, and he kind of presides over them. That's the imagery in the Old Testament. And then you get this image, don't you, in Daniel where you have all the sons of God and they all have like, they're all kind of fantastic beasts, you know, lions with eagles heads and that kind of thing. And then they all disappear. And then one like the son of man comes in Daniel's famous prophecy. And the one like a son of man who looks like a human, he's given the rule and reign. And the Lord says, sit at my right hand. And then this is what Jesus identifies with, right? So he calls himself one like the son of man. And it's again, it's a function of ruling and reigning. It's what it's part of being part of the Lord of hosts, part of Shalom, part of re putting the universe back to right. And Stephen, I'm, I'm sure we have some crown fans on tonight, but probably yeah, right. like the throne. So you've got those yeah. images of the throne and particularly the throne. So we, we do get all that, particularly in our country. But, you know, those other rooms yeah. as well of power, like cabinet offices and boardrooms. It's that kind of place, isn't it? You know, the, the places that rule over normal people's lives and existence. Right. So what they often see, see is that those kind of human institutions are like 
images of what it is to rule and reign. And that as long as you accept that you are a temporary humble servant, you'll be okay. But as soon as you start to think that you're actually more important than you really are, then you grow demonic, right? As soon as you start to think this thing we built will last forever, or we get to choose what's wrong and right, or we own this land rather than we're just caretaking this land for future generations or whatever. Like as soon as you start to think that the buck stops with you, then you're into demonic territory because that's what the demons thought. But if you stay with thinking that we're here for a, for a season to do the thing that the Lord wants us to do, to be, to be stewards and responsible for what we've got. Now you're in angelic territory, right? And so humans are always seen as, destined to rule they're they are also ones like the son of man they are also true humans and the idea is that, that the early christians saw themselves as also being like jesus they get to co-rule they're co-rulers co-heirs with christ the idea when when we are co-heirs with and we're, we're also called sons of god and i know a lot of times now we like to say oh it's daughters sons and daughters of god it's children of god but the problem with using that language, I totally understand why we might want to use that language. But one of the reasons why it's good to remember sons of God is that the phrase there, that what they're trying to evoke there with that phrase is not that you are children of God, but that you are heirs. You are the rightful heirs. And the son was the rightful heir of the inheritance, a bit like Game of Thrones. So... To call us sons of God is not to say all women now become men. It's to say all humans are now the rightful inheritors of this ruling and reigning of the universe. And that here you see the 24 elders are now sitting around the throne. And, and I don't, to be honest, I don't even know what, what that number 24 signifies. I don't know. But I know that what's happening is the throne room imagery has followers of Jesus are now the ones sitting in the throne room. Whereas before it used to be fantastic, angelic and demonic beings and that kind of thing. And now it's humans. Um, and then we get to verse 10. Uh, and I fell down at his feet to worship him. So he, he sees an angel and John says, no, no, no. I'm a fellow servant along with you and your brothers. Again, right. The angel says, no, look, I'm not. Don't make more of me than I am. I'm not a demon. I'm not jumped up above my own station. Uh, I'm a fellow servant with you who hold witness to Jesus. For the witness of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And this is a phrase here in verse 10 that a lot of charismatics really like. <laughs> uh, it's often used in the, in the context of like, um, the witness of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Like Where we witness to Jesus, there we are being prophetic. And I've been in some circles where the idea is like, if you share your healing testimony or if you were, if you, if you needed some provision and you got the provision you needed, then you share that testimony with others and then you help it hopefully will like activate that in, in the room kind of thing. And it's this idea that's almost like share your story and then it will act like a magic spell and it will increase more, more healing or more money somewhere else in the room. And they often use this example of like, because the spirit uh, the witness of Jesus is Jesus' prophecy. But I just want to signal here that this is a phrase that's all about 
politics and ruling it's not about it's not about healing or provision in that kind of charismatic way it's about um if you witness to jesus if you are recognizing who jesus really is then you are speaking truth to power if you recognize that jesus is the ultimate ruler and his way is actually the right way of shalom and peace and judgment and justice then you are speaking truth to places of power you are you are practicing the spirit of prophecy and then we see in verse 11 what that is and then i'll end okay so don't worry uh, we see what king jesus looks like this is the great vision of king jesus in the book of revelation and i saw heaven opened i saw the place where god's reign is unopposed and look a white horse and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and he judges and he wages war in justice and his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many crowns and he has written a name that no one except him knows and he's clad in a robe of red he dipped in blood and his name is called the word of the logos of god and what you see here is i mentioned this in a couple weeks ago but jesus shows up as this warrior figure but he's a warrior figure who's dipped in the blood of his own blood it's not the blood of his enemies all right so this is the spirit of jesus this is look to jesus if you want to know what a true ruler looks like then you witness to Jesus and that will be your word of prophecy to the places of power. So a true ruler uh, has many crowns on him. He's, he's the head of many nations. He's dipped in the, his own blood, which he suffered by willingly subjecting himself to the kingdoms of man. He wages war with the word of his mouth. Uh, from his mouth comes forth a sharp sword and with that he strikes the gentiles and then he will shepherd them with a rod of iron and he will tread the winepress of god's wrath and on the robe and on his thigh is written king of kings and lord of lords and the idea here is that again later on we'll see that he's leading an army but the army is of martyrs and the people who are sitting in god's throne room are also considered to be martyrs and the idea is that like the rightful rulers and reigners of this world are the ones who who were prophets who who babylon crushed who were martyrs who are dipped in their own blood those are the ones who really know what's going on and have the true life way that leads to life and that it leads, and I'm going to end now, but it leads to the to the end of the beast. So we get mention then of the beast and his false prophet, which goes back to Revelation 13, which is which is this idea that the beast is this um, demonic figure who seems to be. I don't know who the beast is in the book of Revelation. The beast is kind of like um, the popular that that part of Babylon that is really popular and charismatic and that leads people astray that claims to offer all the solutions to all their life and to take the mark of the beast in the book of revelation is to take it's not like some uh, the 666 which is called the mark of the beast in horror movies and things we have this idea that it's like this satanic symbol 
which you only find in a dark attic or a corridor and, and you know something really evil is about to happen, right? When you see the 666 and it's always written in blood or something like that. But in the book of Revelation, it it's way more normal than that. <laughs> it's not a weird occultic thing. It's described as like everyday life, everyday buying and selling, everyday warring, everyday that it's just the kind of stuff that Babylon has to do to be Babylon is described as the mark of the beast. And that's the thing where the angel says, come out of that. Don't don't take the mark of the beast. Don't just do what it takes to keep this human institution going no matter what. Don't participate in the human sacrifice that it's demanding of you. And the beast is thrown into the marsh of fire or the lake of fire, which is a place of utter waste. It's a place of dis being discarded. It's not a place of fruitfulness. And it's similar when Jesus will talk about something similar in, in the Sermon on the Mount. And he'll say, don't be like a, a branch that doesn't bear fruit and just gets thrown into the fire. Don't be like salt that loses its saltiness and is just cast out. Don't be a waste of space. And, um, and there you go. And it's with his mouth and with his words that he destroys Babylon. It's not with his fists or his bullets from his gun. So there you go, political reading of Revelation 18 and 19, and it's eight minutes to eight. So how about that, Tim? Did I do it? Is it okay? <laughs> you did incredibly well. That that was amazing. And somehow you didn't seem rushed at all, but you, you covered so much territory. That is brilliant. You've